Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. I'm really excited about today's episode. My guest is Dr. Adrian Williams, a clinical health psychologist based in Chicago who specializes in sexuality and gender. Adrian provides therapy for anxiety and depression, and her work with sexuality and gender includes sexual abuse and assault, sexual orientation, and transgender care. She's a very vocal advocate for primary mental health providers and for breaking down the stigma around mental health more generally. I wanted to speak with her about her work and motivations in general in these areas, but I wanted to speak with her, especially right now, about the challenges of mental health during COVID-19 and also more recently during the Black Lives Matter movement and a number of the protests and demonstrations that we're seeing. This is a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. We discuss sexuality, faith, mental health, race, gender, and a whole lot more. One thing that I love about Adrienne is that she doesn't shy away from talking about tough topics. Instead, she embraces them. And indeed, a lot of her work is devoted to helping people have those hard conversations and breaking down the stigma around them. Two small notes about this episode. One, um, because of Adrienne's specialization in sex and gender, our conversation does touch on topics related to sexuality and sexual violence. So just wanted to make listeners aware of that. On a lighter note, uh, Adrian was recording this podcast in the company of her adorable pug, Kovacs. And so Kovacs makes a guest appearance during our conversation as well. So with that said, here is my conversation with Dr. Adrian Williams. Dr. Adrian Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Norman. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, so, Adrian, how did you first get interested in psychology? Well, it was kind of a long process for me, but I can really trace it back to when I was pretty young as a child. My mother was a, a social worker for Child Protective Services. And so she really explained a lot of things to me and educated me a lot about childhood sexual abuse, about physical abuse, about neglect, and about being able to help people. So I really knew that I wanted to help people when I grew up. And part of what really focused my interest, I recall, was when I was actually a freshman in high school. So I was about 14. And I was talking to the captain of the cheerleaders. And yeah, so she was 18 years old. So in my eyes, she was an adult. (laughs) She's this woman, she's the captain of the cheerleaders. So she was kind of, you know, very high up in my view. And I was just, you know, I kind of idolized her. And I had gone up to her one day at school and I was all excited and I was asking her because there was a basketball game that day and I asked her are you ready for to cheer in today's game and she said oh no I I can't cheer in today's game and I was kind of confused because I was like well you're in school today so you're obviously not out sick so why can't you 
cheer in today's game? And she said, well, because I have my period. And I said, okay. And what does that have to do with anything? Just put in a tampon and go and cheer. And she said, oh, I can't use a tampon because I've never had sex before. And I said, well, that, that doesn't have anything to do with it. You can, you can definitely use a tampon if you've never had sex before. And she said, oh, no, no, see, I, I don't want to break my hymen. And, and I was just, I, I was astounded. And I said, well, that you don't have to break a hymen in order to use a tampon. And I was totally floored because here was this woman who I had idolized and who I see, considered to be so much older than me and so much more advanced than me. And she just didn't know this basic information about her vagina. And I, so I, I was, I was trying to explain it to her and I was like, well, where, where did you hear that, that you can't use a tampon if you've never had sex before? And she was like, oh yeah, my mother told me. And then I, I actually blurted out, your mom doesn't know that's not true. So I, at that point, I kind of was realizing that people just had so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about sexuality, about the body, and that these were important topics. And because they were important topics, somebody would need to talk to people about them. And I saw so many people around me suffering because of it. And so shortly after that, my aunt actually worked at Planned Parenthood and she got me, uh, she told me about this program where you could join this thing called a teen advisory board and you as an adolescent could go and get this training in, in safer sex practices and just a lot of the information that people seem to not know. And then you would go back into your high school and be a peer educator. So, and you know, this is when I was in high school. So this was in the early nineties. So HIV prevention was a big thing. So there was a lot there about just going back into the high school and teaching people about you know safer sex practices and about STG transmission we learned about we started learning about gender at that point and I was and just through that I also started to really see how many people would come up and talk to me people who had all these questions people who I thought were the cool kids and who had all the answers and then I realized that they did not have the answers and that everybody had questions. And because I had gone through this training, they were asking me and I actually had the answers. So all of that kind of came together and, and continued my path towards becoming a psychologist that really focused in sexuality and gender. Can I ask you what maybe some of the questions that other students would have asked you during that time? Oh yeah. Um, a lot of times people would ask, uh, they would ask about pregnancy prevention. They would ask about STD prevention. They would ask about a lot about bodies and what types of things that they could or could not do. They didn't really know what to do. A lot of times afterwards that, uh, if they had had a sexual encounter and they weren't sure about certain things. Sometimes they weren't sure if they had consented. Sometimes they weren't sure if they had put, if they were at risk of contracting an STD or if they were at risk of pregnancy and they didn't know how, how to determine if they were at risk, what the next steps were, who they could talk to if they were at risk. 
how to get in contact with a doctor or what types of testing they would need to get. I remember a long time ago, um, maybe when you were in, maybe you were in grad school that you were um, doing different kinds of sex ed classes through your church <laughs> as well. I hear Kovacs in the background. Hi, Kovacs. <laughs> yes. Um, but I was curious about that, like how you brought these kinds of conversation, talking about sexuality, talking about sex, also intersecting with faith spaces, which is not always what we think of. Oh, yes. This kind of goes along with my personality in a lot of other ways. And, and that same initial experience that when I see that people are uncomfortable talking about something, that lets me know that that is a very important topic and that it therefore needs to be talked about even more because if they're scared to talk about it, there is something that is uh, very deep and very powerful about that. So I love talking about sexuality, about gender, about race and politics and religion. So all, all of those things are things that I, uh, I try to make sure that there are safe spaces to talk about. So I did start doing sexuality education while in churches while I was in graduate school. I had spoken with the pastors and they knew that this was my area, that that's what I was really focusing my studies on in graduate school as I was becoming a clinical health psychologist, but with that subspecialty in sexuality and gender. And at the time, so I grew up in the Presbyterian USA church. And at the time when I was in graduate school, there was a lot of debate within the church about whether to allow people who, uh, who identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or people who were sexually active and not married, whether they could be ordained as pastors, elders, or deacons. And the church that I was attending, uh, which was in North Carolina, the, the congregation was very split with half of the congregation feeling that anybody who felt called to serve uh, a God or a higher power should be allowed to serve in the church. And then the other half feeling that uh, if somebody would, you know, that being gay or lesbian or bisexual or of any other sexual orientation other than heterosexual um, or be se being sexually active before marriage was considered sinful to them and that they did not feel like that was uh, appropriate for ordination. Uh, and so given that there was this debate going on about sexuality, I, I offered to, and, and they needed a, they needed a, a high school Sunday school teacher and I was already in school. And so I was already teaching, I was teaching undergrads. And so I was like, Hey, you know, I, I can teach, but this is my area. And there is a lot of sexuality in the Bible and maybe we can make a Sunday school class where we don't skim over those parts as being unimportant parts of the Bible, but that we actually explore those and we actually take a look into what these different parts are saying and what we think about those parts and how those things may or may not apply to how we are living today. And especially because I had already read the Bible uh, I, on my own, I had read, you know, I had done a project where you 
read from Genesis to Revelation. And I had been surprised at how many sexuality verses there were and how many different messages there were that often contradicted with each other. And so I thought that it would be interesting to not make it, you know, to have a, a Sunday school class where people did not feel like you couldn't talk about sex at church, but that church also would tell you how that you should think think and feel about sexuality because those two things didn't seem to go together all right like that i felt like if, if a church or a religion wants to you know if they are saying how to think about sexuality then it would also be important to talk about sexuality within that within the the, the within the same space and some people really liked it and they felt like they left they learned a lot um some parents pulled their children out of the class because they did not want their high school children to be hearing about sexuality. So, um, and I actually heard through the grapevine, some parents might've pulled their kids out because they thought that their children might be hearing a gay positive messaging. And so, uh, and so I thought that those kids might've needed it the most. Yeah. Wow. That's, I do remember when you did that though. And uh, I remember you saying at the time that I imagine a lot of, young people really got a lot out of that as well. Um, and so I know that now you describe your subspecialty as um, gender and sexuality. What does that include? So when, when you, um, you know, if you're a clinical psychologist or a therapist who subspecializes in gender and sexuality, like what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. One is that I do work with a lot of patients who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. And I can do a lot of work in terms of gender affirming care. Sometimes it is helping people to explore their gender identity when they are right at the beginning of trying to um, question and explore what their gender identity actually is and how to differentiate that from sexual orientation, how to differentiate that from the types of things that they had been hearing about themselves while growing up and really coming into their own identity. Sometimes it includes helping them to come out to family and friends and navigate a world in which they might experience a lot of discrimination. Uh, sometimes it's helping to prepare them for uh, physical transitions and helping them through those processes. Um, with sexuality, it includes a lot of things. So sometimes, I'm working with my uh, transgender patients on their sexuality in terms of learning how to be sexual in their bodies um, and their transitioning bodies. Uh, I also work with cisgender people on sexuality. So probably the biggest thing I work on there is people who have a history of sexual trauma. So that can be during childhood or during adulthood. And so I do a lot of therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the things that is a common misconception is when people think about post-traumatic stress disorder, they often think about combat veterans from the military. This is actually not very accurate. In fact, um, in the United States, which is where I practice, um, the, uh, the percentage of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder who are veterans is only about 6%. Most people who have post-traumatic stress disorder have post-traumatic PTSD from 
other causes, including sexual traumas, uh, neighborhood violence, motor vehicle accidents, uh, physical abuse while growing up, things like that. So a lot of my practice is working with people uh, uh, with history of sexual traumas, but I also do a, a lot of work in sexuality in general. Sometimes that is, will be people who are having difficulty with their sexual expression. So sometimes people having difficulty with sexual arousal, both um, males, females, and gender non-binary people might have difficulty with arousal, including erectile dysfunction, um, difficulty lubricating. I have people who have difficulty achieving orgasm or achieving intercourse, uh, people who, and then sometimes I just have people who are really uh, have not learned very much about sexuality or their bodies. And so sometimes my therapy has to start at a place where I am explaining a lot of things about bodies and how bodies work, uh, especially if somebody did not receive that education while they were growing up. And often they're now adults, um, often they are now in lifetime partnerships or marriages and they are having difficulty with expressing themselves sexually with their partners because they uh, are not even sure about their anatomy or um, or even how to, you know, different ways of expressing themselves. I've had cases, for example, of people who were trying to get pregnant with their partner with no history of trauma or anything, but just difficulty achieving achieving pregnancy and they were referred to me because there was some thought that there might be anxiety related to it. And the more that we discussed, the more that I realized that this, that the couple was actually not achieving intercourse uh, and that that was part of the reason why they were not able to get pregnant is because neither one of them had been educated about how to uh, have vaginal intercourse. So a lot of was going back to the way you, you, when you were in high school, just being able to point people towards knowledge and identify where those gaps are and almost what you kind of felt called to do in that first conversation with the cheerleader. I mean, you're really doing that now and a lot of the service that you're, um, that you're doing with your clients from what it sounds like. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the term trauma a couple of times. How do I guess how do therapists in general, but how do you in particular, like how do you deal with what I imagine must be a lot of vicarious trauma and like taking on a lot of um, stories of experiences, hearing a lot of, a lot of different things. And I, I know a lot of your work is non-trauma as well, but those that are tra- like dealing with trauma, how do you carry that yourself as a therapist? That is a fantastic question. One of the things that I have found to be central to that was actually learning some of the most effective treatments for trauma. For a while, I was uh, I was using some of the treatments for trauma that had less evidence behind them, and I did actually find myself often um, experiencing some of the same symptoms of. PTSD that my patients would have just because I was hearing hundreds and hundreds of stories and it was very hard to process all of those. Then I start, once I started to be trained in the, the first line treatments of trauma. So there are two first line treatments for PTSD. One is called cognitive processing therapy and one is called prolonged exposure. 
these are the the two that have the strongest evidence base and the the two that are considered the first line treatments they're not the most mar- the most heavily marketed of, of the treatments but they are the most effective once i actually started learning those that in and of itself made a huge difference for me because i was able to apply apply that learning to my own thinking and my own behaviors and recognize what was happening to me so that that has been one uh one aspect was just making sure that I was doing these effective therapies and also because the more that I did these effective therapies I primarily practice cognitive processing therapy now with um with my PTSD patients and the the more that I do that and the more that I can see people actually heal from PTSD and I so I see people who come into therapy who meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD and then they leave therapy and they no longer meet diagnostic criteria seeing people heal has been a big part of that. I I was also taught that it's incredibly important for all therapists who do trauma work to have their own self-care and therapy network. And I was actually pretty resistant to that for a very long time. I, uh, I cognitively thought that that was important, but for some reason, even though I would recommend that all humans have a therapist, it took me a very long time to to be like, oh yeah, I actually, I should have my own therapist so that I can process this so that I can keep myself healthy while I am hearing, um, you know, while I'm hearing all of these, you know, very bad stories of some of the worst ways in which humans can torture each other. And that also made a big difference for me. Absolutely. And on this topic still of trauma, I'm, remember in a previous conversation we had in terms of your work with uh, victims of sexual violence, you mentioned that you often work with victims, but you also sometimes work with those who would be considered perpetrators or abusers, or perhaps people who occupy both spaces and that perhaps there's someone who um, is engaging in abuse now, but because, or perhaps because they were linked to, um, because they were abused as a child previously. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. I think we often, when we hear that someone's working on sexual trauma or sexual violence, there's an assumption that, that victims would be there seeking out therapy, but how is it to work with those who are perhaps on the other side of that dynamic? That has been uh, a place of my own personal growth over the years as well. For a very long time, I did not want to work with perpetrators at all. And I do recognize that 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 in and of itself can create harm when there is somebody who is the person who might have perpetrated something and they feel like even their therapist can't help them that leaves that section of the population without help. And that is definitely a section of the population who needs help. And what I was able to find was that I I did kind of fall into it unintentionally that in doing, uh, as you said, in doing this work with victims, 
that sometimes these confessions would come out, especially from people who had experienced sexual abuse as a children, as a child, and then acted out sexually while they were still a child, but acted out on other children. And because of that dynamic, it made a lot of sense to me because I knew that that was one of the things that often happens to children when they are victims. And I was able, and at this point, once I started experiencing that, like I had already been trained in these therapies that were more open to helping people who had experienced both. And what was very striking to me is that if, if a person has had perpetrated something in the past and they were feeling terrible about it, that when we went back to that time in the past, we could definitely see how their own trauma was manifesting in their behaviors. And that this was very different than how it gets portrayed in TV shows and movies where there's an evil person who's, yeah, who's committing these violent acts. Now those people do exist and that is a different type of therapy. Um, people who, do victimize other people because of, you know, for example, like if they are, if, if, if they have, a, you know, antisocial personality disorder or something like that. And that is a different type of therapy. So I've not really experienced that a whole lot, but for the people who, who have experienced both in terms of it being a, um, you know, being a cycle of abuse, it it was it, it felt really good to be able to help somebody break that cycle, and to recognize how even their perpetration was was actually a child of their own abuse, and not that that they were this monster, and that that's the reason why they did. Mm -hmm. why they were both were abused and abused others. And, um, and I think that being able to have more compassion for those groups was also, um, was a great place of growth for me also, mm -hmm. uh, because it let me know that things are not, I mean, even though I often teach my patients that nothing is black and white and things are always more complex this was a place where I had to challenge that in myself, that there are not just victims and perpetrators, that often there is a lot of overlap and that there can be a lot of pain on both sides. Absolutely. And some of the themes we've been talking about in terms of sexual violence, um, the work that you do with people who identify as being LGBT, how has the more public conversation changed on some of those issues during your time working in them? Do you feel that there's more attention to certain issues, certain communities in the past? Do you think the conversations changed for the better? Um, how do you see kind of that larger public discourse and how does that affect your work? Oh, I think that there has been a, a drastic change since I started working. In fact, yes, just yesterday I was having um, the gutters cleaned on my house and the person who came to do the work 
they they came up and they said and you know they were like okay I'm gonna work over here ma'am and then they said oh I'm sorry I shouldn't have used I shouldn't have used female pronouns with you without asking and I was like wow that was amazing <laughs> like that is true you, you should not have used that without asking and I just I was not expecting that <laughs> when um you know from just you know from the general public I've seen a lot of change within healthcare, but then to have that be something that happens in my everyday life where somebody catches themselves gendering me without uh, without asking uh, for what my identity is or what my what pronouns I use, I just I found that to be phenomenal and just a great place that I, I feel like we are moving forward. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. And I know we've been talking about your subspecialty and gender and sexuality a lot, but I wanted to pull out a bit also because you recently published an academic article, but then also an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune about the need for primary mental health providers can you say more about what that means and why you feel that's important? Absolutely. So I am a clinical health psychologist and I work in primary care. So I'm a primary care psychologist. My primary appointment is I am an associate professor in a family medicine department. And so for most of my career, I have been working side by side with primary care physicians and more, most specifically family physicians, although I've also worked with internal medicine physicians, to help to train primary care doctors in behavioral medicine, which is this overlap between physical medicine and the whole mental health aspect of things. So. With this, I often see patients at the same time or together with a primary care doctor. Some of the education is about um, mental illness, uh, um, like or mental health uh, conditions, things like depression or anxiety or PTSD. Um, sometimes it is really just about psychology in general. How do you ask questions to a person so that they um, so that they don't feel judged? How do you get a, a good amount of information out of a person. When you say something to a person, how does that impact their behavior of whether or not they choose to uh, get a mammogram or get a vaccine? And how do you have those conversations to engage in shared decision-making and things like that? So in doing this work, part of what I realized was that we have this primary care for physical health, that physicians are generally trained primarily in physical health. They go to medical school and learn mostly about physical health. When they do learn about mental health, um, they tend to only learn about that in terms of mental illnesses. So like only learning about diagnosable conditions. Uh, They are not, um, and that is, by far a minority of the things that they are being taught about because there's just such a vast amount of information. And 
this was very interesting to me because um, as a psychologist, I had spent the same number of years in training. So as a psychologist, I had spent about uh, after, after college, about eight years in training uh, to learn how to be a clinical health psychologist. And this was learning not just about diagnosable conditions, but also learning about things that, you know, just how minds work in general and learning, you know, how personalities work in general and how do people learn and how do, uh, you know, how do people think when, when it's not something that it's just diagnosable, which I felt like a lot of physicians get to learn in medical school. They get to learn about how bodies function first before they learn about um, specific disease processes or then how to, to engage in healing. And what was really striking to me is that we have all of these avenues for preventative health when it comes to physical health and we have universal physical health and there's not a whole lot of, there's not as much stigma when it comes to physical health. So people are, you know, all people um, in the United States have to go and get um, an annual physical before they can go, go to school each year. They have, you know, you have to have your school physical before you go into school. And there's not a whole lot of stigma around that because when something is universal, it's very hard to stigmatize it. And while we had started to move mental health into the public, uh, into the primary care realm, there was still this very big gap between what was being offered for mental health and what was being offered for physical health. And that gap was that we were definitely not do engaging in anything preventative. So anytime that a patient is being referred to a mental health professional, it's after they've already screened positive for having symptoms of something that they might then need a mental health specialist for. So they might have screened positive for uh, a depressive disorder or, or an anxiety disorder or a psychotic disorder or, or something else like that. Uh, so we weren't engaging in any prevention at all. And it definitely wasn't universal. And because it wasn't universal, this creates this stigma that, you know, either you are mentally healthy or you are not mentally healthy and you need a mental health professional. And that's not accurate. That's not how mental health works. There is nobody who stays mentally healthy for their entire life. We all suffer. We all struggle. Uh, and the idea that only a, a, a small proportion of the population could get access to a mental health professional and only after they had been experiencing symptoms and to the point where they met criteria for a diagnosable condition just did not seem like mental health parity as much as that term had been thrown around. And so my articles on the primary mental health providers was just this idea that we had a primary care for mental health in which psychologists would be able to meet with people every year in the same way that we meet with in the same way that people have a primary care physician, people would have this uh, general practitioner psychologist who would meet with them every year and we'd be able to screen for early interventions and we'd be able to do preventative work and everything, we could do all of these things at each stage. So instead of um, waiting for things to get really bad when things are, when people are older, we'd be able to 
for example, um, recognize when, uh, you know, when kids are entering school and we could start teaching them about communication strategies during school and we could start teaching people about inclusion and exclusion and bullying. And then when somebody, and then when bullying does start, we would be able to directly uh, intervene with both the bullies, with the people that they were bullying and the bystanders. So it would be creating a very different atmosphere where everybody would recognize that it was appropriate to talk to their general practitioner psychologist, um, that they would be regular checkups, but then we would also be starting very early to talk about those types of things. Uh, my idea, you know, once children started to go through puberty, we would start, you know, we would be talking about, you know, we could be talking about consent before they start having uh, sexual contact with other people. And, the idea is that like consent is not unidirectional and it's not only for one gender that all genders have the right to consent and that then throughout the life in the same way for primary care physicians, the way that, you know, we might start doing mammograms at age 40 because people become at higher risk. We would do some of the same things for mental health. You know, when people start entering relationships, um, changing jobs, entering school, moving to new new cities, that there would be different things that we'd be able to help with there as part of developing these skills in the same way that we tell people to wear seatbelts or get vaccines to and, and to balance eating and exercise so to, to help build them up and inoculate against some of the more negative things that can happen. Um, and then when people do become sick, in the same way, they could then, they already had this relationship with a primary care psychologist, and it would not be trying to find a mental health provider in the midst of already suffering in so many other ways. Yeah, everything you just said just makes so much sense. I'm wondering, to what extent is this idea gaining traction, or are there any uh, districts or states that are piloting this? Like, where does it stand right now? That is a great question. Um, it, it actually, um, it did start gaining some traction and some a, a, attention at the end of 2019. Um, that is when it, uh, that is when the article came out in the Chicago Tribune, uh, and there started to be a lot more discussion about it. Uh, unfortunately, very soon after that, uh, it, the coronavirus pandemic started and. Um, the idea of trans, of transforming mental health care has definitely taken a, a, a backseat to anything that is not COVID related. And, um, and so most of the focus in the past six months has been on working on mental health care to help people who've experienced uh, COVID themselves or in their families, people, uh, people who, you know, frontline workers or whoever, you know, people who work with people who have COVID, people who are having anxiety that's COVID related in terms of getting scared of contracting the virus. So most of the movement in mental health has really started to refocus on COVID related topics and so 
so this has not gained so then the traction definitely has has slowed down in the last several months yeah i I imagine that's for for so many things and with covid though you know we hear and i'm i know rightly that there's been such an increase in mental health challenges around covid not necessarily in the direct way that you just mentioned in terms of first responders but people dealing with the stress of this time in so many different levels, you know, ranging all the way from, you know, increased domestic abuse to increased isolation. What what have you seen during this time that stands out to you as important mental health challenges? And also, how, how have you been able to deal with it as a therapist during things like lockdown when you're separated from people and clients? Well, the things that I saw most immediately was a dramatic shift in the patients that I was already seeing for other things. And part of this was because a lot of the things that we had been working on in terms of coping mechanisms, in terms of interacting with society, in terms of trying to uh, overcome a lot of the thought patterns that they had developed as a result, especially of traumas, that the world is dangerous, we're now starting to be reinforced in these other ways by everything that was going on and by the media. And often the things that people had been starting to do that were bringing them out of the symptoms that they were having before. So for example, increasing their social contacts, that then went away. And so I saw a lot of my patients all of a sudden, just all at the same time, uh, all start to, to have worsening symptoms, uh, a lot more suicidal thoughts because of feelings of hopelessness and especially if they had started to get better beforehand and now they were having to take some steps back, that that was particularly devastating to some people. And I have been extremely grateful for all of the work that has gone into very quickly transitioning into telehealth and being able to work with my patients through telehealth. Uh, Most of the people that I work with have were able to transition very effectively and uh, and we were able to pick therapy back up within one or two weeks <laughs> and so they didn't actually miss very much um, time in therapy it was uh, it was a very quick turnaround there were some definite times that were scary because there was also a lot of instability in uh, in the internet. And so sometimes we would be speaking about something very serious or a person would be in the middle of talking about very serious suicidal thoughts and suddenly the internet would go down because uh, in talking to the internet service providers, they were saying that, you know, that they 
we're not quite prepared for all people to suddenly be streaming movies and streaming videos and streaming Zoom calls and and streaming telehealth appointments. So there was just a, a stress on the bandwidth that was being available. And so there were definitely some very scary moments there where I lost contact with people right in the middle of some, uh, you know, some very vulnerable moments. And thankfully we were able to reestablish a connection very quickly, but it also makes me recognize that if we didn't have that connection to begin with, if we did not have access to this technology, that they would have been spiraling by themselves without, uh, without any interactions. And that this, uh, that just being able to have some therapy, even if it did get cut off occasionally was so much more than the people who did not have access to it. Absolutely. Um, and are you still doing online therapy now? Is that still the case in Chicago? Yeah, everything is still pretty much everything is telehealth. I do offer in-person sessions for those cases in which the risks of completing telehealth is greater than the risks of coming into the office. So of course, if they do come into the office and I am in primary care, there is the risk of being exposed to other patients who might be there specifically because they are being tested for or have been diagnosed with COVID. But for some of my patients have, if they are, for example, living in a, in a household where they are being abused, it would not be safe for them to have their therapy to talk about their abuser with their therapist while they are in the same house with that person. And so, um, so that would be an example of a time when it might actually be safer for them to come into the office, wear a mask, um, and have an in-person session so that they can be protected from the, um, very real danger, uh, that they would have if they spoke in front of their abuser, as opposed to the potential danger of being exposed to COVID with protective equipment. Sure. And you were obviously still in the COVID context and we're having this conversation now in the second week of June. And so going over two weeks since the the start of protests, the start of demonstrations, and what we've really seen is the Black Lives Matter movement spreading across the United States, really across the world. I'm here in London and we've, you know, continuing through today, having a number of demonstrations and protests and mindful during this period also of the mental health stress challenges on many people during this time, but especially on, on people of the black community and those who have been dealing with the stress previously to these two weeks, but then in the way so much has manifest now, I was wondering if that's something you could speak to, yeah, to shed some light on that, what's going on now in terms of that as well. Yeah, there's, there's definitely been a lot and it has been a, a particular struggle, I think, to see some of the dynamics get played out in therapy in a number of different ways and to also recognize how in a lot of ways, training has been lacking for uh, fourth therapists who identify as ethnic minorities 
uh, in some of these situations. So I've definitely had a lot of people show up to their therapy sessions in a lot of distress. And what each person needs is a little bit different, of course. I've had some of my patients who identify as minorities asking me what to do uh, because I also uh, identify as an ethnic minority. And in training, they do teach you some about you know, putting aside your own things so that you can engage in therapy, right? So they do teach you things like, you know, if you had a parent with alcoholism and you have a patient whose parent has alcoholism, here is how to separate out those two experiences. But what they don't really talk to you about is what if you are in the exact same experience at the exact same time uh, not just parallel experiences, but actually experiencing the same thing at the same time as your patient. And so I had, I definitely had people come to me, you know, asking how I'm, you know, what I, what they should do to handle it. And they wanted to ask me specifically as a person of color and me being at a, a, a place of loss of being like, well, I have not figured this out myself yet. I have not figured out how to cope with this and how to balance all of the different things going on. So, which I think in and of itself might also be comforting to some people is to recognize that, yes, like this is, this is just a hard time and it is okay to not, uh, to not have all of the answers right now and that we are all suffering right now and it's very difficult. Uh, I've had a lot of, uh, some of the, my patients who identify as white come to session and want to uh, confess uh, some of the racist thoughts that they've been having and some of them specifically wanting to tell a person of color this so um both because they are feeling guilty but also because they they would like a way out of it and therapy is an appropriate place to bring up some of those thoughts and that was another area where i feel like i did not get much training uh most of the training that unfortunately when i was in grad school were most of the diversity training that we experienced was assuming that psychologists were white and that they might be working with uh, patients who were of different ethnic identities. And most of our, you know, most of the education that we got was with that. And it was, uh, and I did, uh, and I had pointed this out a number of times as I was like, you know, when they would talk about working with patients who had different backgrounds from you, I would often explain like, well, that that's actually going to happen to me a lot. And I'm still not getting the education about how to work with patients who are different from me. And I think that this has been a wonderful time for people to, to again, start talking about some of these things that have been 
that may have been on their minds and that they have not talked about before. And as I said before, I love talking about the things that make people uncomfortable. And so the fact that this is a time when people are coming in and they're like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about race. Uh, I, I think that this is a fantastic step forward. And I hope that other therapists are, uh, are engaging with that, that they are not putting it to the side and saying that this is not the reason why a person came to therapy, that this is not the reason that they're depressed or anxious, but rather actually engage that patient in that thought process. And if the therapist themselves is not comfortable with it, that this is a time for them to expand their own practice and expand themselves in the same way that I've kind of described that's extraordinary. And what you said about really going back to the beginning of our conversation with you wanting to kind of create a space for uncomfortable topics to be discussed and, and have that space. And it's, it's so interesting that the therapy space is being utilized by some to do that. I was wondering just on a broader level, how you think as a society, as a community, we can maybe get to a point where we can can broach some of these taboo topics and have people be able to speak more openly about race, about religion, about sexuality in a way that is as constructive as you, not as, I mean, people won't be trained as professional therapists like you, but in a constructive way, maybe not as constructive as a therapy session, but a way that we can do this better? I think that a, a, a big key to this, and part of this does also kind of tie in with some of my ideas of primary mental health providers, is that this is not something that we should just be starting to talk about once a person reaches adulthood, that one of the things that has been very striking to me in my, in, in when I am training physicians is that sometimes I am training physicians in listening skills. And if we started there and started there during childhood, teaching, you know, there are, there are many things that I learned in elementary school, middle school, and high school that I don't use as an adult, but I never was trained in listening skills. And that is something that absolutely everybody needs and everybody uh, will use professionally and personally. I could totally imagine a different world where if we started having you know, some of these primary mental health providers even being located in schools and helping teach longitudinally different listening skills and how to listen to people who are different from you, how to engage in uh, empathetic behaviors, how to be vulnerable around other people and allow other people to be vulnerable around you without causing harm and to be able to understand different perspectives. If we started to learn those skills as universal skills, that in and of itself would then open society to be, be able to have more of these conversations 
one of the things that is often described about about a lot of minority communities, whether that is, um, you know, ethnically minority communities, people who are disabled, people who have uh, sexual or gender minorities, they, we all often express that there are things that we experience and that when we talk about those experiences, that people who identify as the majority of those identities that or the, that have the majority identity that that our experiences are not believed and that that then creates this dynamic where then people have to feel like they either are just not going to be heard or that they have to prove what happened and that is what has happened with a lot of a lot within black lives matter is that these topics are not new. These statements of what um, African-Americans experience um, in the presence of law enforcement, this has been being talked about forever. But until there was video proof of it, we weren't taken seriously. And if we could start at a different place, if we could start at a place where people actually learned how to listen and believe other people's experiences that could expand people's understanding and our ability to help each other in a much broader way. Well, that might be a good place to start wrapping up our conversation. Is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't talked about? I don't think so. We talked about a lot of of things. (laughs) Well, in that case, I'll just ask you the question we usually end in. And that are, is that, are you, do you have any book recommendations that you would recommend for listeners? Um, Sure. So, I mean, going off of what we were just talking about, I think that the main book recommendation that I would that I would say is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Abram X. Kendi. This book is kind of based on this idea. Um, so if you think, uh, so Dr. Uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum uh, had this great analogy about racism where racism is kind of like a conveyor belt or a moving walkway like that you would see at an airport. and that if you recognize that society itself is kind of like this moving, moving walkway where it's already moving in the direction of racism, that, you know, yes, people, there might be people who we identify as racist, and those are the people who are kind of running on that walkway, <laughs> that they are moving in the direction of racism, but they are moving very fast and they are trying to get there, you know, they're trying to get there faster. But for the majority of society, Um, the majority of society who might not consider themselves racist, they are still standing on that walkway. And so they still are moving in the direction of racism. And so by just standing there, by being neutral, uh, it is still contributing to the overall racism in society. And the only way to actually combat racism would be to walk backwards on that conveyor belt and, um, and, and to walk backwards at a speed that actually helps to, uh, helps to actually start, stop the walkway from the direction that it's going and going backwards in a more powerful direction. And so the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist is kind of based on some of those ideas of 
that it is not sufficient to just, you know, to just stay still, that it does have to be something that is very active. Now, I would also say that for people who might not be quite ready to jump straight into how to be an anti-racist, um, there are some books that they might re- want to read beforehand to uh, to prepare themselves uh to hearing some of those messages and um, especially for people who identify as white who might still feel very uncomfortable in terms of talking about race and racism issues and so I would also recommend uh, the book White Fragility Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Dr. Robin D'Angelo and Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race by Debbie Irving Um, both of those are great kind of beginner texts uh, they're not, I mean, they're not easy texts at all, but they are ways of kind of helping people to start thinking about race and racism before they can actually jump into anti-racist work. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Adrian, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could keep speaking for a while But thank you so much for your time and for all your thoughts and insights today. It's just been extraordinary. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Thanks once again to Dr. Adrienne Williams. You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like this episode, please tell your friends, give us a rating, and subscribe via Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions, you can always get in touch with me on Twitter at Dr. Julie Norman 2 Thanks as always for listening. Stay well, and please join us next time.